Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And for the last time, this is the Scene From Above podcast with us, bringing you news and discussion about Earth observation. Follow us on Twitter using at EOSceneFrom or the hashtag SceneFromAbove. This episode is us just talking about stuff. Okay, let's uh, do the news. And really, I think it sort of ties everything back in to uh, everything we've already talked about or we've talked about a lot over the last four years so it's almost like a greatest hits type news in a way but it's all new <laughs> I mean what can you say I think the biggest thing that's happened since we last spoke was that Google Earth Engine has published its pricing so perhaps we now know for the end user how much things are going to cost potentially so it's also made it clear on who can use it so it's still freely available for NGOs, governmental users, so all, all that stuff. But if you wanted to use it commercially, the pricing is now up on the Google Cloud. If they want to start charging for it, then you could argue that's a step closer for it being turned off. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's a step further away from it being turned off. Read into it whatever you like. I think it's great that they publish the pricing. I'm not 100% clear on the intricacies of the pricing, if I'm honest. Yeah, it's not the clearest price list in the world, but it's definitely a start. It's helpful to know you know, how much it is to get going and how much it might cost to add extra people in your organization into the mix and that sort of thing. When you click the run button, there's a drop down next to the run button and you can say run with profiler. Uh, hat tip to Keiko there who pointed me in that direction. And if you run your script with the profiler, it will tell you what's called and how much EECUSs are being used, if that makes any sense at all. So what is an EE? What was it? <laughs> I'm just going to run this bit of script and I'll tell you exactly what it is. So, um, so I've just basically run this Landsat image from 2014 March time over California. Okay. So the profiler tab popped up in orange and then you get on the left, you get EECU.S. So I don't know if that's a smaller version. And then it tells you the peak memory and the count and then the description of what's happening. So it's got encoding pixels to image for the first thing for me. And there's a reprojection that goes on. And there's also various other things, you know, some curious stuff like plumbing. Um, uh, sort of, so it's kind of interesting in, in a way. But I did note that when you panned, everything was fine. But the minute you changed your zoom operation, so if I zoomed in, it then caused more processing power. Oh, okay. I just basically doubled my EECUs by just zooming in one wheel of my mouse, if that makes any sense at all, perhaps yeah. not. When I discovered that, I thought, oh, crikey, you could, could you potentially run up a massive bill just sort of zooming in and out of your image? But I don't think it's quite as cutthroat as that. I would guess that people in Google have thought about the pricing structure quite a lot. And I think that is reflected in the types of subscription packages that you can get. Now, some of the arguments that have been made about, oh, well, they'll, they'll probably just turn it off. It's like, yes, there is that risk, but there's a lot of risk with almost everything that people do. And I, I fully accept that Google has history in terms of turning various different services off. But this is very different from some of their services where they're just trying to get 
um, sort of your average consumer, your average computer user to use something like on a social media platform or something like that. This is very specific. It already has a very dedicated user base. And that user base has for years been crying out for clarity around the pricing. I really think that this could be the making of a large part of the future of Earth observation because you have so many people coming out of universities with skills in Earth Engine now. And up until this point, they were having to sort of work around the system in order to use their Earth Engine skills in the businesses and the organizations that they went and worked for post-university. Well, now there's a whole raft of organizations that can benefit from the fact that they know exactly what they can use this for and when and how much, well, they can probably have a guesstimate as to how much that might cost. And I don't think we should underestimate the number of companies who don't need a full GIS team or a full Earth observation team or a full application being worked up. They just need to throw some data at something, have a quick look at it, see what the results are, and then move on. And I think this will allow them to do that. Yeah, I'm with you on that for sure. Oh, licensing enough, enough <laughs> observation, you know, never-ending issue. We've been talking about Earth Engine since the start of this, born a bit years ago. It's only gone from strength to strength. Yes. Okay, Stack Browser version 3 is out. So this is quite nice because you can sort of point it at the catalogue and then you can inspect the various different things within that catalogue. So I was just looking at Astria, Earth on Demand there. Other ones like Digital Earth Africa, I think a great way of sort of inspecting this stuff, you know, it's got the Copernicus dam in it, for example, and it shows you the coverage uh, that it's got here so in digital earth africa it just covers africa unsurprisingly and then you know it's got a list of all the items but it's another way of search and discovery i mean yeah. you know just going back to this dem i mean I've, I've just literally just gone through the top one all the time from digital earth africa on the copernicus dem and i've just arrived at a dem off the coast of somalia i think it is and um, just one tile that's appearing to me and i've got the option to download it it tells me the EPSG code, all this kind of stuff. It's sort of a, if you're familiar with how it all works, this is quite a powerful way of getting your data. Yeah. And I'm all for that. I just quickly downloaded a piece of data there. Super nice. <laughs> it's a very calming interface, I must admit. I know that sounds a bit daft, but sometimes when you're trying to find data, it's just a bit too much. There's so many options and various other things that you're trying to deal with. Whereas this is, I don't know, I find this quite nice just to... To scroll through and start having a look at what what's being presented there there's a heck of a lot of catalogs and yeah you can can load your own there does seem to be a, a few bugs but a lot don't work <laughs> but you, you know a lot don't work <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. um my first bit of news is to do with nvidia so hands up nvidia is an organization that i think i should have tried harder to get onto the podcast they've interested me ever since we first started with some of the things that they've been doing and yet i think they keep their satellite data processing part of their business quite quiet it looks to be all around the ai stuff that they're doing primarily but anyway nvidia is now working with the united nations satellite center so UNOSAT. and again this is to look at deep learning and ai uh, as to be expected they're collaborating the two different organizations in order to try and boost 
climate-related disaster management using AI for Earth observation, so AI for EO, which I think we've mentioned before yeah. in the news sometime in the past. They also mentioned that there's a data science course as well that is available. So if you're interested in that, you might want to sort of just check out that course. Interesting. Yeah. Certainly, they're one of those companies, aren't they? The biggest geospatial companies aren't necessarily geospatial companies. Oh, yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the Landsat Enduring Legacy, This, uh, I think it was a first available as a hard copy book a while ago, but it's it's been made available as a open download. And this is, this is a massive 621-page PDF. I mean, I think it's one of those things that if you're interested in Landsat, you're going to absolutely love this. If you're not so interested in Landsat, perhaps give it a skip. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's nice to have the story. I think one of the things that slightly saddens me is that we've never managed to properly tell stories. Yeah. And I don't think anybody really gets it particularly nailed on. But this this sort of tells the story of, of Landsat. But yeah, this is, this is a, a really cool um, resource and... I suspect it's probably going to be very useful in, in teaching. It's effectively a history book, isn't it, really? Mm. Um, telling, like you say, telling the story of Landsat. Understanding the lineage of where we are at the moment. So some of the systems that are in place at the moment have, almost all of them have some link or some tie back to Landsat, whether that's they've been inspired by Landsat or whether they try and replicate some of the data or whether they try to improve on some of the parameters around Landsat. Most people working in the sector today probably are working there because of the fact that Landsat existed and has existed and has been continually funded. And you know, the work that the Landsat team over the decades has put in in order to justify the amount of spend on the project and then to uh, process the data, to send the data out in the early days, to make the data open, it, I, I just cannot say thank you enough to what those people have been doing i I genuinely think that the entire sector owes a a sort of debt of gratitude almost to the work that they've been doing because landsat itself provides the the sort of the playing field upon which everything else is built if that's not mixed metaphor which i think it is it allows all of the new space stuff to happen it allows all the data science stuff to happen it allows all the open source tooling to come along in one way or another. So yeah, I think it's a, a brilliant book. And I think it's a really good story to understand. We struggle so much explaining what we do. But really, we've got this amazing resource in Landsat to tell a story. Cool. So my next bit of news is given that this is the, the last news that we're going to be doing for the podcast, I want to leave you the listener with the top 10 satellite imagery repos on GitHub as of today and just talk about them a little bit so not not each one in depth but just the fact that there's such a wealth of software out there basically i went to uh, github.com and i did a search for satellite imagery and then i sorted them based on most stars from that search term there's 1468 repository results which is pretty amazing like basically 1500 repos linked to the term satellite imagery in some way. Number one is Robin Cole's Satellite Image Deep Learning Repository, and that's got 3.8 thousand stars. And then the next one is Chris Rieker's Awesome Satellite Imagery Datasets. And the third one is from Mapbox, uh, which is RoboSat. And we're still up in the thousands of stars here, close to 2,000 for all of these. 
and something that I hadn't come across before, which is from an account called Plant99, and I think it's Felicet, and it's labeled Satellite Imagery for Dummies. So I'll come back to that one in a minute. And then Xavier have their Rasta Vision, which I think we've mentioned before on the podcast as well. Trail Behind have Deep OSM, which is training a deep learning net with OpenStreetMap features and using satellite imagery. Development Seed have Landsat Util, and we've just ducked under the thousand stars now. Then Sentinel Hub with Sentinel Hub Pi, which is basically there to download and process satellite imagery in Python. Then we have Microsoft's global ML building footprints, which we mentioned, was it last episode? or Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was, wasn't it? That's come in pretty high up straight away. And then the 10th one is from NASA Gibbs, and it's uh, Worldview, the interface for browsing global data and full resolution satellite imagery. You know, we're still at 600 odd stars at the 10th that's listed, which I think is pretty amazing, really, when you you think of these. But the, the thing that really made me smile and and very hopeful for the future of um, software development in earth observation and satellite data processing was how recently most of these had been updated for instance robin cole's satellite image deep learning the number one spot that was updated yesterday the number two spot was updated on 13th of may and then like rastavision was five days ago sentinel hub 22 days ago The global ML building footprints was eight days ago. Worldview was eight days ago. It shows that all these things are still being developed. Um, And I think that's that's really heartening. Yeah, I'm kind of curious as to why, if you search on a tag, you get less returns than if you search on a generic term. So you've searched satellite imagery in all repositories if you say in your first one there, in, in, if you click on satellite imagery is the tab that's in blue. Oh, yeah. That then returns 632 public repositories. And if you order it by most stars... Oh, have I messed up my... Uh... <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just, I'm just interested as to what... I mean, Awesome Earth Observation Code has got... I just had a quick look. 851 stars. So by your list, it should have been in the top 10. Oh, yeah. So why doesn't it get in there? But why, more interestingly, why when you click the tag? Oh, okay, maybe I get the tag because maybe not everyone tags it. Maybe not all of those repos that you found have been tagged. That's true. And maybe it's just looking for satellite or imagery in the... Ah, is is it just in the description so this is a lesson in searching in GitHub, <laughs> not uh, that I'm I, I'm not aware of until just now. Yeah. So just because you've searched for satellite imagery, doesn't necessarily mean that you've got all the searches back because all it's doing is it's searching in the about. All right. Okay. So yeah. you can search the tag, but that doesn't get everything either because that relies upon someone putting it in the tag. Yeah, yeah, that's satellite imagery tag, whereas someone might say remote sensing or satellite data or Earth observation or satellite images. So what's the lesson here? So if you want to be noticed on GitHub about your project, you must put it in the about. Yeah, and in the tags. (laughs) Ideally in the tags, but that doesn't matter as much, I don't think. When you do a normal search, have you got the opportunity to 
no, when you do a normal search, there's no tag thing, is there? So what we're doing here is we're doing SEO on GitHub <laughs> in real time. That's really interesting. So if you want to get found, you better make sure, A, your profile has the things that you yeah. want to get found for. It can just be a load of keywords. I don't think it matters. The repos that you're writing must have the about filled with loads of keywords. And you better tag it. I think the least important is the tagging. Okay, well, I, I'm not. I'm not. Honestly, I'm not pouring scorn on what you just said. I'm, I was just. I was just. Oh, it's interesting. Absolutely though, puzzled. Yeah. As to why the tags returned less. Hmm. Okay, that was quite fun. There, I was thinking it was going to be a simple little news item, just sort of like here's some cool stuff. And actually, we've broken down the search parameters of GitHub. Okay. Last thing I wanted to say: dynamic Earth. This is based around a, a paper that got published literally the day after we finished recording our, um, <laughs> our, our podcast. And, you know, this is what happens, isn't it? Because things move so fast. This dynamic world idea. So this near real-time global 10-meter land use land cover mapping. So this is a paper from Nature. And um, there's a number of names in there that I think we all recognize. I'm not going to read them all out. There's a huge, huge author count. But it's this idea of applying the terrain characterization on the data as it comes in and google earth engine is the sort of the conduit for this so every sentinel 2 image is put into the model i think it's a cnn that models the, the the land use and cover mapping when i first saw it i was like wow this is you know again another another massive step forward and then what we had was a procession of people sort of pulling it apart saying oh well it's not very good at this be careful what you're using it for. But I think that sort of misses the point, really. And, and, the, and the point is, A, that they can do it. But what we get is a percentage breakdown of the likelihood of the class. And that's a massive thing. You kind of can't catch your breath of it in a, in, in a way. It's, it's astonishing. And you know that as amazing as this is, this is sort of step one. And that over the next few months, few years, it'll be iterated on. It'll be improved on. Yep. Um, so my final bit of news. Yeah, this is our final scene from above. So Andrew and myself, but we have some great news. Uh, the scene from above podcast is not dead and will return in the autumn or the fall if you're North American with a new vibe and a new format. And it will be curated and created as a venture between ladies of Landsat and sisters of SAR. So we're looking forward to that. Been a few months in the making just to ensure that the handover and everything else is, is going to be smooth. But definitely seen from above should be back in the autumn and that's the news the main topic in this episode is basically just going to be a bit of a chat so we've got some discussion points uh, that we we might get around to but also we put a, a general call out on twitter about what people what they would ask us if they were in the recording studio with us i guess maybe we can go through some of those in the first instance and then if we have time get on to the discussion points and then just sort of wrap up well i would say that what i did today was i listened back to our first one. Oh, that must have been interesting well one of the nice things you can do is you can listen back at 1.5 speed or 1.5 speed <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> If there was one thing you could change about your 84 podcast episodes, what would it be? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I think at the start, we, I didn't have a very good mic. <laughs> <laughs>
um, and I had grossly underestimated what difference a quality mic would, would make. And hearing yourself back is always a bit of a challenge, I think. But I have listened to every single one of the 84 episodes. If there's one thing you would change, I, d- I don't really think I would change much. No, not much. I don't like to have like regrets in way because I would have just done the same thing at the start. It's clearly we're, we're unsure about ourselves and nervous, <laughs> but maybe one thing we could have done would be to express maybe stronger opinions that we have on something. Certainly the first year or so, I think we were both highly aware that <laughs> we were effectively unknown and we were independent working as well. And you, you still are. So at that point, we didn't want to say anything that we thought might be detrimental to to us getting contracts in. But actually, I think just the fact like, that we do the podcast is probably beneficial i mean maybe not directly but it, it definitely raises profiles of both of us but yeah i'm i'm not really sure um your point earlier about have having a format whereby you create a story we did discuss that very briefly and i at the beginning of this year and i think it's a great idea i think it's a lot of work and that's why it hasn't happened this year but i think that could be a really interesting format but i'm i'm really happy with my 84 podcasts in terms of the, the podcast episodes, I always wanted them to be half an hour and not much longer. <laughs> we pretty much hit that most of the time. Yeah, I think common themes came along uh, and it was hard to sometimes deviate from them. And I think we brought our own biases. I thought about what you were saying about, you know, were we outspoken enough? And I, I sometimes think that was a bit of a missed opportunity for us to not take a more direct stance but i think that's in both of our natures to to be a little bit conservative on rather than saying this is not the case or whatever i don't i don't yeah i don't think either of us are necessarily good at calling out stuff one thing i've been told by a couple of people is that we don't disagree enough and that they want us to disagree on things and invariably we tend to end up agreeing but i think well a that's because we're good friends but B, I think it's because we both really like the technology that we're dealing with and that we're finding out about. And we are the whole point of the podcast is to try and be positive about Earth observation and the sector and the tech and where it's all going. So I, I don't think that's something I would change. I think it's been really good that we've agreed with stuff, but I think it's an interesting observation. Yeah, I think I think potentially, you know, we could have done a kind of debating style where you take one side and I take the other. Yeah, don't necessarily have to to believe believed in it or or whatever. But the converse also, I think, potentially is reassuring because it is the right time for us to hand it over. Yeah, we are just two white middle aged middle class guys (laughs) in the same country, in in the same half of that country, working in the same (laughs) industry. What we lack is the diversity that we crave within science itself and and the and the business side of science i i think so i think we've created a a good platform that we can hand on that was your opportunity to disagree with me oh sorry <laughs> I totally disagree with that we need more middle class white aged men <laughs> white middle aged men <laughs> the diversity side of things is something that has been more eye opening to me yes through yeah. the podcast and i'm so grateful for, the, for those who've come on and spoken about it. It's a slow game or a slow burn, but there's some people making big efforts. Personally, I think it's the biggest challenge that we face in our sector, which is 
increasing the diversity of voices and opportunities for all sorts of people. For me, thinking back over the years that we have been doing the podcast, there was a definite swing, sort of the middle of year two, where I became more aware of the ideas around diversity and inclusion. And I think we started, both of us started to try and look for Earth observation stories from other parts of the world. And now we're sort of limited by language in that you and I only speak English. We did try in our own little way to to sort of use Google Translate and things like that in order to get some new stories from elsewhere. I think by doing that as well, it started to open both of us up to groups who were trying to do this, trying to improve diversity and equality and inclusion, that sort of thing. But I also think that just as a concept within Earth Observation and Geospatial, it it grew sort of at the same time as the podcast. I'm not saying the podcast had anything to do with it. It didn't. But we were able to become more aware and hopefully communicate in our own small way some of that that was happening. And I certainly think some of the discussions that we've had with people from different backgrounds from us with different experiences and trying to do different things from other parts of the world well, I, I've certainly benefited. It's made me really realize how much some people have to fight just to get heard, let alone to actually sort of make a difference. So it's, yeah, I, I think this is a, a highly important part of Earth observation and geospatial and STEM. All of us need to do our bit in order to try and make sure that everybody's included. Yeah. Um, okay. I was going to say, how has the sector changed since your first episode, since to now? Well, you know, at the beginning when we started, mm-hmm. so we had Earth Engine yep. and we were talking about it and we were talking about um, Nigeria Sat and Morocco Sat that just been launched. We were talking oh, yeah. about the wonders of Sentinel-5P and air quality. We had little vision of the cloud-native geospatial so I, I think that's one of the things that has changed a lot. The search and discovery has taken a step forward, but I yeah. still think, as we've discussed even today, there's work to be done there. There's been a proliferation of open source software development. There's been an increase in the amount of open data that's available. They've, they're both things that have chuntered along in the background. There's been... Certainly in the last couple of years, a huge amount of external VC funding coming in. And I have lots of opinions on that about whether it's good or bad. But I guess it is transforming the industry a bit in that the money makes more data, more hardware, more job opportunities. So in some respects, that's good. That's growing the earth observation sector. I suppose the other thing related to that and related to the open source is the change in the types of jobs i think do you think what's the change uh, so i think software development has become the thing and it's it's not just earth observation i mean it seems like every company out there that's handling any sort of data wants software developers so we've had lots of discussions over, over the course of the podcast along the lines of what skills you need. And quite often we say you don't have to be a coder. And that's true. You don't have to be. And we've had discussions on Twitter and so have others. And it always comes back as you don't have to be to have a job in Earth observation. But I don't know. I think now if you cannot do any coding, 
then you're at a disadvantage because that's what I think employers are going to be looking for more and more. And you can see there's been a huge number of software engineers coming into the into the sector, you know, quite open saying, oh, I, I knew nothing about Earth observation. You know, I'm looking at this data and it's great because I get to play with lots and lots of data and I like writing code. That's sort of pushing the job market in Earth observation into a very different place. And it's not to say it's a, a worse place or a better place. It's just different to where it was four years ago. Yeah, I mean, we've always talked about it, didn't we? I mean, we, we did a number of podcasts on skills. I think everything you just said is true. I think you, sh- you should get those skills in your toolbox. Perhaps I haven't noticed the change as dramatically. I don't know. I, I still think there's lots of people who don't code. Yeah, that might be the case. But if you look at all the trends that we've been talking about, so cloud optimized, data formats or stack which is effectively a machine readable metadata format and just tools like the planetary computer and earth engine the easiest way to interact with all of those is through code oh yeah yeah so the people who are going to be able to do the things that earth observation keep as a sector keeps saying that it wants to do i.e process vast amounts of data really quickly you're going to need some form of coding in order to do that and to demonstrate that you can and i think once you start coding then if you have the interest for it it's very simple to carry on coding in in terms of other things that have changed i mean i agree with you about the the vc um, observation but we had no vision of these specs these um special god i can't even know what the acronym is but basically taking these companies public in shell companies i couldn't quite get my head around what the end point was for some of these startups i think there was a point in time where i was super interested in the the way this was all working out and as a business sense because it was also new i think but i think today if i'm honest i'm less interested in that <laughs> um because i i think now these companies have floated and and you can kind of follow along with their profit and loss or you know what they have to report and in our first episode we had a brief discussion on space junk you were saying oh this is a problem there's more things being launched and I was saying well it's the same as having a bus in London versus a bus in Oxford five years later I feel that that's there's a business in this because the other thing that's changed over the time of the podcast is the number of launches. And there was a period where you were mentioning how many launches there were, and it yeah. just kept growing and growing. And it is interesting because you <laughs> you always hear about the launches, but you never really hear about what happens to the satellites that are launched, particularly given that a lot of them were small CubeSats and things like that. Did that all work out? No idea. I'm guessing it did. Yeah, what if it didn't? What if there's bits of them up there? One other thing that's changed is the uptake of SAR, I think. So I think I'm right in saying that ISI started roughly around the time that we did our first podcast, something like that. I think we were talking about them early on. Yeah. yeah. Their success has seems to have spawned the success of multiple different SAR services and products and satellites and what have you, which I think is really interesting because in the late 90s, when I was looking at SAR, it was the last thing that anyone was thinking was going to be big because it was so niche and, and so difficult to understand. The effect of ISI has been really impressive in terms of what it's done to the entire sector. Yeah. Um, do you want to say something about where you see things heading and what the challenges might be for the next generation? Uh, well, I mean, in terms of predictions, I back away from these things. But I did look back on it in a, in a previous podcast because we did, we did try and make a prediction. 
yeah. well, I did try and make predictions and we were off the mark. There's a surprise. <laughs> because video from space was just coming along and I could see a business case for building high resolution elevation models. There was talk of constellations. I could sort of see what was going on, but in hindsight, that does look rather stupid now. <laughs> We've been yeah. saying hyperspectral data. You know, in 10 to 20 years, I, I mean, we've got Landsat Next coming down the line. That's going to have significantly more bands. I think the next boundary will be spectral. Less will change than we think it will. I still don't think we've got a proper foothold on search and discovery. We tend to get things 80% of the way there and think, oh, that's all right now. I've make a bold prediction. I think that the, the dashboard thing will, will slip away. I think that's less useful than we were all made to believe hyperspectral i'm sort of on the fence i i think yeah we'll do it but i don't think anyone will necessarily care but then on the flip side the amount of information that you could get from a hyperspectral uh, sensor about vegetation dynamics might mean that everybody cares so i'm unsure about that one my main point of view and i'm, I'm going to try and be as positive as i can about this but i think the main point of view that i have about the challenges for the next generation and also where I see remote sensing heading is that we are kidding ourselves that it's going to be this huge thing. I see so many things on Twitter about, oh, we can democratize EO data and everybody will be using it and someone will come up with an app that will mean that everybody will be using EO data. No, they won't. I, I really don't think they ever will. I think it's always going to be niche and I think we're going to do some really amazing, cool tech stuff within Earth observation. And some companies will be more successful than others. But I talk to people who are outside of, of like geospatial and certainly outside of Earth observation. As soon as you mention satellite imagery, they'll go, oh, that's cool. But they don't care about anything else after that. Yeah. Okay. There was a period back in the early 2000s where the running joke was, oh, next year is going to be Linux on the desktop. That's going to be the thing. It'll overtake <laughs> Apple, Apple and Windows. Never has. However, there are more Linux installations in the world than any other type because it's running on most servers and all Android phones, et cetera, et cetera. But nobody knows that it's Linux. And there's no point telling them, oh, it's Linux running that server or, oh, it's Linux running your phone because they don't care. So if someone can come up with something for Earth observation whereby nobody needs to know that it's coming from satellites, that might take off. But I think the other thing that... Um in terms of predictions or, you know, trying to see down the line, what was the thing, to, applications around the corner? Yeah. I think that the big play is, for want of a better term, in climate. And we're very good at watching pictures of the earth slowly get hotter. Yes. Uh, yeah. um, and, and glaciers retreating and deforestation happening. Um, I really hope that we use the knowledge better. I would agree with that 100%. We've got to get a grasp on carbon. And there are some companies doing unbelievable things in, in this sphere, but there's also a lot of noise about it. As a sector, we literally watch the world burn. You know, it's important that we understand where wildfires are and things like that. But the company or the organization that makes the difference will be the one that gets information from those images into the hands of firefighters in a timely manner. And in a way that those firefighters can use it without having to maybe zoom in on a mobile map or whatever. Yeah, this is 
the nub of what frustrates me at the moment is that we're in such a massive climate and ecological and biodiversity crisis. And it just seems that we do a lot of watching of the problem. And I think what we need to be doing is really totally thinking outside of the box and probably bringing in totally different people into the sector in order to get the applications that people might actually want. It's a global problem that we're trying to sort out here. And I think we just need to get as many voices around the table as possible in a way that is useful and progressive. And it's not just a talking shop. Get the information out of the data into applications and not just the same types of things. Like we all know the forests are, are being chopped down. We don't need a million different companies telling us that. What we do need is some company that's working with someone on the ground to actually stop the deforestation. Time is running out, isn't it, to do something? Yeah, I think we need to be able to demonstrate that our technology ends up making tangible differences on the ground. Earth observation works best when the academics and industry work together to build robust scientific sound business models that can then be impactful um, okay so i guess the next question is um what's next for each of us i don't know so what's next for you <laughs> i'm not sure if there is a next is there we're just stopping <laughs> um, well i mean you know if this is to go on i will support the podcast in whatever way i can yeah i, I think it is time to hear new voices and um, what's next? So I just I continue work for myself until there comes a point where a job comes along that I can, or that they want me. Um, <laughs> I am ready to go back to full-time employment. I found working for myself incredibly pleasurable and it's enabled me to do things like the podcast. But ultimately, I probably do see myself back in full-time employment uh, at some point. Um, not quite sure when that will be or what that, what that looks like. What about you? Yeah, I don't know. Those of you who follow the podcast will know that I stopped working for myself last year and I've been working for Spark Geo uh, in the UK, setting up their UK company. That's taken up a lot of time, um, which is, I guess, really what I want to be doing next is promote the podcast when it gets picked up again. I've got an ultra at the end of August. That's pretty much on my mind. <laughs> I think probably for both of us, what's next is more of the same, but we just needed to make a bit more space in our lives. And one of the ways of doing that was to, to drop this. To be honest, I'm knackered and uh, it'd be quite nice to just have a bit of a, a more stable, less choppy life. Okay, that's a lot. I think that's probably about it. That's probably the end of our, our rambling chat. Just want to say thank you very much to you, the listener, for listening for the last four and a bit years. We are going to look to archive the podcast on GitHub. So if for whatever reason you need to access an old episode, you should be able to. But also you can stay subscribed to the Podbean platform, which has the podcast website or wherever you get your podcasts. And you should be able to keep an eye out on social media for the revamped show that's coming up later in the year with Sisters of Sar and Ladies of Landsat. Is there any thank you you want to say, Andrew? It's fine for me. Wind it up, man. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, continue to interact with the podcast on Twitter via at EOSceneFrom and using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. Thanks for listening to us ramble on for four years. Uh, that's really it from us. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. It's been a pleasure. He's working again. Yeah. I'm joking. <laughs>
Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.